arrived knowing nothing of himself. Who he is, soon you will know, because what begins at the water shall end there, and what ends there shall once more begin. This is what happens. Men become lost. Men vanish. Men are erased and reborn. Soon he will know. Soon he will. Soon will. Soon. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day, a production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Tuesday, May 16th, and though there is only so much mystery a person can handle at once, particularly when one is buried in all of it, We'll still set sail, bound for adventure, aboard a book. A chronicle of two readers finding each other and their deadly struggle with forces beyond their understanding. The book? Ship of Theseus, the final novel by a prolific but enigmatic writer named D.M. Straka, in which a man with no past is shanghaied onto a strange ship with a monstrous crew and launched onto a disorienting and perilous journey. The writer? Straka, the incendiary and secretive subject of one of the world's greatest mysteries, a revolutionary about whom the world knows nothing apart from the words he wrote and the rumors that swirl around him. The readers, Jennifer and Eric, a college senior and a disgraced grad student, both facing crucial decisions about who they are, who they might become, and how much they're willing to trust another person with their passions, hurts, and fears. And our guide on this voyage will be the author's author, Doug Dorst. Dorst teaches writing at Texas State University. He is the author of the Penn Hemingway-nominated novel Alive in Necropolis and the story collection The Surf Guru. His work appeared in McSweeney's, Plowshares, Epic, and elsewhere. In the summer of 2009, J.J. Abrams, creator of the hit television show Lost, approached Dorst with the concept for a unique literary experience. S is the result published by Mulholland Books in 2013. It really is an exciting treat to have Doug on the program today. How are you doing? And fabulous name, by the way. <laughs> I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's really it's exciting to be able to talk about the book again. It's because it's been a little while. It has. It has. And so well, let's let's start there. So, what do you make of how? People find books at the exact moment that they need to find the book that they need to find. Uh, I mean, I think I think that's probably true, not just for books. I think we have a tendency to encounter whatever it is that we need to or we're primed for. Um, and yeah, it's just uh, the universe gives us interesting things at interesting times. Did you happen to read the book, The Swerve? It was pretty popular a few years ago. No, I haven't. Uh, and I don't think I've heard of it. Uh, tell me about it. Oh, it was a, about a transcriptionist, a, a, an Italian tr- scribe who was, he wrote notes in the margin of um, the Bible and stuff or not. I mean, he, he was a scribe in Rome, mm-hmm. but, but he really was taken with this poem called on the nature of things, which wasn't boy, I'm butchering this totally. But anyway, you really come to know this character. But the, the interesting thing was 
the person who wrote that book, and it was a highly acclaimed book that won awards that year, um, he found the nature of things, this this uh, Roman poem, right when he needed to find it. And so even though it is funny because in our in our time and place, we really just kind of say, well, that was an interesting coincidence. And then, you know, kind of don't attribute too much more to it. Yeah, I, I I mean, well, first off, I want to read that book, so I'm going to go shop for it as soon as we get off the phone here. And yeah, I, you know, I'm 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 torn, I guess, because there there is a part of me that belongs firmly in the in the coincidence camp, and there is a part of me that that I don't know. I mean, I shy away from the, from the mystical, but I feel like there's some area in between that's really interesting. Um such that, you know, maybe like we're more inclined to notice the things that subconsciously we're ready for, or I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure that I have words for it, but it, it, it feels to me most, most true or, or perhaps most interesting, uh, I guess, which is maybe more important, uh, that, that area in the middle. Does that, does that make sense? Mm hmm. For a while, I was trying, I mean, so I, in terms of trying to understand the zeitgeist that our digital culture had produced, I was kind of saying what we're experiencing is an all-connected simultaneity. Mm. And it's interesting because your book really does kind of convey this in a really analog sort of way. Where, like, everything, everything relates to something else. But it's all happening at the same time, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, That was, I mean, I I can't say that that was necessarily an intention. I would say that that's something that that developed in the act of writing. Um, I mean, that wasn't like part of the core mission of the book. Well, so like, that's that's a really important point that I want to start with. So in, in composing this book, you started with the the standalone novel at the center of it. Is that correct? Yeah. Although, I mean, it, it might be, you know, to, to go back to it, it started with uh, JJ approaching me with the formal concept of, you know, let's do a book that's, it's a novel in the form of margin notes of another text. It wasn't even necessarily clear at the beginning that it was going to be another novel. And, uh, and, you know, and I, I was asked, well, what sort of story would you try to tell given that, given that form? And that's when the characters, Jennifer and Eric and, and Straka, the author, their, their interactive story, um, that, that was the idea I had, the idea I pitched and, uh, and JJ liked it. And then we talked about, okay, how are we going to make that work? And what are some thematic concerns? And, you know, what, what are some of the kind of logistical concerns that we have to address as far as like reader experience and in fact, you know, plausibility of, of the narrative. And so, I mean, we went, we went back and forth sort of developing those ideas for the, for the better part of a year, um, perhaps even more. Uh, and then uh, I went off and did a draft of the prologue in the first chapter and then layered in uh, a draft of the margin notes around it. Uh, which is then what we took out to publishers along with a sort of big pitch document. Uh, then once the book sold and, and we had a deadline, then it, then it was kind of a sprint. And, 
Yes. And the, the strategy that everyone agreed upon was that the, the source novel, the Straka novel, Ship of Theseus, had to be written first. It had to be solid enough to stand on its own because without if it if it couldn't the the whole exercise would would just fall apart and you know be nothing more than a failed exercise so yeah so uh which is a long way of saying yes you're right we started with ship of theseus <laughs> well i think it could have still been charming if even if the the source novel was not all that fabulous but it really does stand on its own quite well so it's really a, oh, thank you. It's a compelling, you know, it's a compelling. So that's the fun thing I think is to get lost in these different layers of the whole package, I guess. Mm-hmm. But with that in mind, the the question I had was so back to this all connected simultaneity. Were you writing with Jennifer and Eric in mind, or? Do you think you were discovering synchronicities along the way where as you're as you're creating the marginalia, you're like, oh, this is a nice place. You know, here's a here's a line that just exactly prompts what I need these other characters to do. Like, do you know what I'm uh, saying here? Yeah. Where you're creating yeah, your own synchronicities unintentionally, but maybe subconsciously on some level, too. I would I would say um, there there was a lot, lot of it that was improvisational, uh, and so yeah there were there were those discoveries of of connections or simultaneities. I would say it was probably easier to find them because I went into writing the Straka novel with some general idea of what mattered to Jennifer and Eric, or or perhaps more importantly just some of some of the themes that would be kind of operational in, in both works. And so while, while I wasn't, I mean, I'm not a very calculating writer. I, I am a pretty improvisational writer. So, I mean, this is actually pretty typical that I, I, I have a general sense of things that are important and that sort of guides the discovery uh, that comes with the the writing of the book, um, and and it just so I mean it happens then that there there are two separate texts, and I approached the first one understanding common themes to both texts, which then made it a lot easier to find those places um, when I was when I was doing the second one to find the places in the first one that sort of invited connection. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely a lot of, of discovery along the way, but I think preparation made that more possible and made, made it easier, frankly, to kind of, uh, to be able to work loosely and find maybe more unexpected or tangential connections. What were readers' responses to this when it came out? Did they find it? too challenging or exactly the right amount of challenging that creates that kind of mystery that, you know, creates the kind of passion where someone wants to, you know, it's, it's that kind of passionate struggle that a reader could have. Yeah. I mean, I, I think for many people, yes, I, I don't think that's the case for everybody. 
And, and I mean, that makes sense. You know, every, every reader's different. Everybody wants something a bit different out of a book and, and it, and it is a challenging book and there are people, you know, there are people who really got into the challenge and embraced it and connected with it. And I think felt an even greater payoff because of what they'd put into it. And there are some people who, you know, probably were interested enough to accept the challenge and go along with it. And then there are some people who I'm sure flung the book across the room the moment they opened it. Um, when I, when I got my copy of it for the, you know, before it was published, I, I took it into, uh, took it into school and, and showed it to a colleague of mine and, and, you know, and he, he just opened it up to a page that had just, you know, some of the pages are incredibly crazy with like looping handwriting all over the place and arrows. And, you know, it's, it's a bit overwhelming to the eye if you're not ready for it. And he said, Oh my God, have you read this? Uh, <laughs> he was kind of incredulous that anyone was going to put it out. Um, and, and actually, the, the the answer is frankly, I haven't. I mean, I had not, and not in the way that anyone else in the world would be reading it, because, you know, I I made the thing and I made it in layers. So if there's anyone in the world who will not have a personal experience of reading it cold and trying to, you know, kind of assimilate all that information simultaneously, it, it's me. But um. I mean, I think it's what we expected. You know, I think we knew from the beginning that we were going to be making a challenging book and, and JJ, you know, he was, his, his guiding principle was like, let's make the coolest story that we can make taking full as full advantage of the form as we can and let the result be what it is and not try to, get too absorbed or, or too distracted with trying to imagine what the hypothetical reading experience might be and, and actually to embrace the idea that, or, or at least to trust in the fact that what might be alienating to some people might be the thing that makes it transcendent for others. So let's not run away from it. And then, so that's another curiosity. Visually, there's something so amazing about this book because it, it transcends a literary work and almost moves into like a, a graphic novel where just as much personality of the characters is coming out in the, the text, the, the, represent, the representation of the text itself as is, you know, the content of the text. Um, I, when you annotated your Straka novel, did you do it? on a computer or did you do it similarly or did, was that purely the, the design people who ended up creating the, the visual element of the book? Uh, I would say it, it was probably 99% the design people. I mean, I did, I did the first chapter, the one that we showed to publishers, <clears throat> excuse me. I did the first chapter doing both Jen and Eric's handwriting in my own hand on, on sort of hard copies of paper. But, uh, you know, that, that was not going to be workable for, you know, for the, for the whole project. And then I ended up just using the Microsoft word comment function, which, uh, you know, obviously you're not going to get a whole lot of personality in that. But, uh, and then what the designers did is they really, they really embraced our, 
I mean, we all agreed that the handwriting was a way of, was, an, was going to be another element of characterization. And, and the characters were going to write differently at different times because people do, you know, your, your handwriting will often reflect your state of mind. And, and, and I think the designers really understood that that was, uh, that was going to be, you know, a, a really cool, uh, trick for them to have in their bag for, for doing this work. I, I think it makes a huge difference. And, and, and I think, you know, if I recall correctly, there were definitely discussions that um, JJ and, our, and and I and our editor had about how the handwriting was feeling on X and such a page or at X and such a moment. Um, but they they got it. And, you know, it, it was not I don't think anyone had any difficulty trying to convince anyone else of I mean, we were all, I think, very smoothly working towards the same effects. Um, one of the early foreign editions, actually, I'm not entirely sure uh, why it happened. I assume it was a cost savings or, you know, just a logistical issue. But one of the foreign editions used uh, handwriting fonts instead of actual handwriting, uh, which which is really unfortunate because it, it means that you know, there's, there's no way to get that nuance, that emotional nuance in, in the writing, because it's all, you know, it's all, it's all the same letters appearing the same way every time they, they come out. And, and there's definitely a flattening of the emotional effect of the book. So, uh, once that one came out, I think, uh, letters, letters were sent to ensure that that not happened in any of the other foreign editions because we did have an example of, of how much it mattered, you know, how much the, the sort of human element of having people actually writing those pages, how much that mattered. Books are so linear in terms of what, like that, that technology, there is this, you know, it's a linear thing, but what's interesting is that because these notes are like, so the thing that, that, scared off your colleague is what makes it so wonderful is that it, 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 linearity goes out the window and you really could, I mean, it's all happening all at the same time Yeah, it is how it appears, yeah. even though the truth of the, the book is, is that it also occurs in a really linear fashion and the color of ink communicates that too. Right. Could you maybe describe the, what the process is for the characters in the book? and how this would happen for uh, listeners who aren't familiar with, with the conceit. Sure. So, uh, you know, the, the thing is when you are holding this book, uh, you, you are being asked to imagine and believe uh, that you are holding the very copy of this book, uh, which is a, it's a book that it's an old book with yellowed pages. that has been marked up one of the characters stole it from his high school library years before. And um, the way the, in the story, uh, he's a grad student. He's in the library. This is one of the, he's working on Straka for his, on Straka's work for his dissertation or has been anyway. And he leaves the book in the library. Uh, Jennifer, the other character is, uh, is an undergrad who works in the library and she finds the book 
and leaves it for him with a note in it uh, because she's actually gotten hooked into reading it in, in the time she was holding it. And from there, this sort of very tentative development of kind of shared literary sleuthing and a love story develops with them passing this book back and forth, leaving notes for each other, and then leaving it in stacks for the other to find. Uh, and they, they don't, uh, you know, this goes on for quite some time without, without their actually physically meeting. Um, and so that's, that's an important part of, of what's going on is you have to, um, or our challenge was to get people to believe that these were two characters who, even in this day and age, given who they were and given the, the fun or excitement that they were having in communicating with an, with an unknown, but interesting other in this way would, would choose to, to communicate in this way instead of just, you know, texting each other or whatever. <clears throat> and, um, but then that was a, there was also a problem because if we were going to do that, then, you know, we, we couldn't just say, well, the characters will just work their way through the book. And, you know, the first exchange will happen on page one. The second exchange will happen on page two. The third exchange will happen on page three. That just seemed tidy and fake. And it seemed much more interesting and, and in fact, more plausible, at least, you know, to, to me and JJ that, each time they left the book, there might be notes for the other left anywhere in the book and they would be interested enough to go looking because part of it too, is that the, the characters are going to be interacting with, with the story. They'd be responding to things in the text, which, which again could happen anywhere in the book, not just on, you know, whatever page they might be on if it were working in a straightforward linear way. Um, and then as a concession to sort of, you know, make it a little easier to navigate, we decided to color code the, the characters' comments such that, I mean, if, if you imagine that, well, I mean, if you're anything like me, you use a pen for a week and then you lose it and then you have another pen for a week or, or whatever. So there, there are different timelines that you can kind of, uh, that you can track just based on the, you know, the, the inks that the two characters are using. So there's a set of comments that are in pencil, uh, from when Eric, uh, who initially had the book was just marking it up on his own. And then there, are, uh, there, there are conversations going back and forth in blue and black, uh, which is, I think the earliest timeline and then green and orange and then red and purple. Uh, and then finally black and black, uh, and, and it's all, you might get a, a red and purple exchange very early in the book and, and not really know exactly what it's connected to or, or know precisely what the context is on, until much later. And we, we didn't make it quite as messy as we could have in that way, but we wanted to do it at least a little bit and try to find that sweet spot where people would be able to go along with the not knowing, but not maybe be too, too overwhelmed. The learning curve is pretty steep at, at the beginning where oh yeah, you're, you're dropped fully into this world that's happening. The fun thing is that the characters are prepping you for what's coming. And so they themselves are also helping your education as it were, Eric and Jennifer. 
But mm-hmm. at the same time, I found that as I discovered this, it's like, now I don't remember all these names. I have to go back. Where was this information? And then there's even another meta level in that this is a translation by a character who's putting footnotes in the thing that might not actually be footnotes. That might be a code for some other mystery. Right. And, and they might actually be several other things as well. I mean, they could be codes. They could be, um, well, anyway, I don't want to don't want to spoil too much it. about sure. it. But right, but yes, it's it's another layer of complication that a, a reasonable person would probably not have introduced into the book. Um, <laughs> well, and then let's talk about uh, there's 22 inserts in the book, <laughs> and why 22? Was that was that important, or was that just what happened? Um, it's it's not like numerologically significant. What we knew we wanted to have, the, because the characters, you know, one of them is, is, he's a grad student. He's been researching Straka. He wouldn't just be limiting himself to the text of this one book. He'd be, you know, collecting, there'd be Xeroxes of pages from his research and letters from an archive, and he would want to share them with someone who is getting involved in, in the sleuthing work along with him. So we knew that we wanted the characters to be able to leave stuff for each other tucked into the pages. And we, and I, and I think we wanted to, you know, have the, the different forms of the inserts, uh, have as much fun, have them be as diverse as, as they could be. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's a page from the school newspaper. There's, um, as I said, like a, you know, simple Xerox of a, you know, from a, you know, a, a really obscure book that, that one of the characters has copied. Um, there are, there are notes from people. There are five postcards from Brazil. Uh, and, and, and frankly, I wanted to get a little weirder and get even a little more three-dimensional, but that's silly because obviously it would, it would break a book if you tried to shove that stuff in there. Um, but as we were working I think JJ encouraged me to just keep a list of all the different things that you think would be really cool to stick in the pages. And, you know, don't worry about what's practical. Don't worry about even what's a good idea. And when we get to the end, you know, we'll, we'll figure out what makes the most sense. And so when we had a draft, you know, locked in place of both ship of Theseus and the margin novel, then JJ and I and, and our editor Josh Kendall at Little Brown, we sat down with with my wish list and you know pretty quickly got to an agreement on which which of these pieces will do the most to advance the story or and or get the reader more deeply immersed in the world and it and it, it boiled down to like. 22, 23, 24 of them. Uh, and yeah, and the rest were just kind of self-indulgent things that I'd had fun, you know, messing around with. Uh, but you know, it, it was clear which things would be practical and which things would pay off. And, uh, and so that's, that's what the list came down to. From a numerological standpoint, 22 is the major arcana of the tarot, which is kind of, just an interesting little coincidence. And then also people mm. have, have attributed that journey to the same as uh, Campbell's hero's journey, you know, so this kind of 
above ground underworld type full arc of the hero. So that was, you know, a little a little tickle to me. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I um, yes, I'll, I'll say yes. That's exactly what I was going for, and I'm that clever. <laughs> uh, no, no, I'm, it's. Uh, I mean, honestly, if if we were, but probably the 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 most numerologically important detail in the book so many things revolve around 19 yeah. in the book the, and the, so, and so probably you know I, I could totally see an argument for keeping it to 19 extra pieces hmm. uh but we wanted to do 22 so we did them well so uh, listeners might not be aware of the is it the theseus paradox what is this because that's a major theme of the book. Right. So it, it comes from an old sort of philosophical thought experiment um, that if you, you know, if you take a boat and uh, the, the boat is damaged, you replace some part of it. Um, you know, is it still the same boat? You know, I think, you know, the, the first piece that gets replaced, probably everyone would say, yeah, or most people would say, yeah, it's the same thing. But what if down the line you get to the point where you have replaced every single piece of the boat? So there's not any of the original material composing the boat. Is it is it still the same boat? Um, and that, I mean, it's a, it's a fun thought experiment. I don't actually, you know, I don't, I don't have a firm answer to it. I'm not a sort of a passionate believer that it is one thing or the other. But we were interested in questions of identity. Um, because the because the question of identity is important with respect to Straka, the author. Who was he? How uh, how would we how do we figure out who he is, or how do we seek to define who he how, who he is or was? Um, and then, and identity is also important, you know, perhaps in a slightly different way uh, to the two uh, present time characters who are trying to figure out, well, you know, who am I? What 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 are my core beliefs? What makes me me? And so that that fell into place, I guess, as an organizing image and something that would be really fun to play with as as we were going through the Straka book. And and one of one of the things that uh, you know, I mean, the first move that I made was really to literalize it. Is to okay, so we've got a ship. There's actually going to be a ship that's going to figure prominently in the novel. Let's go with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's where it started. And 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 the story offered up. You know, at, you know, we were talking about how um, opportunities and connections present themselves if if you're writing improvisationally. And uh, there are so many variations on that theme or on that idea or sub questions to the questions to, to those fundamental questions of identity that, that arise both in the Straka novel and in the, and in the generic exchange. Did the design team find opportunities for creativity that expanded where you started? Cause I can imagine they could and would. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think probably, I mean, I think I think everything they did enhances what we were trying to do. Like, they got it and they ran with it. Had had they had maybe an extra year to to do that work, 
you know, these, these are incredibly capable designers who I'm sure would have taken it even farther out. Um, but you know, everyone had a deadline. So it was, let's, let's do the most interesting stuff that we can, uh, in, in the time that we have. But yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure I can like rattle off, you know, 10, 10 examples of it for you right now. But, but I, I mean, I think, you know, they, they did a, a lot of stuff on their own. There'd be like little doodles here and there or little moments of emphasis or, I, you know, it just, it, it, uh, there's a lot of their work. Oh, I'm sorry. No, that sounds, uh, insufficiently full of praise. Uh, so much of what they did is essential to the way the book looks and feels and reads. And, um, and their own creative decisions were, were part of that. We were all working together and contributing stuff. So the reason why I was really interested in contacting you is because I've been kind of immersed in this book. It's called The Night Ocean by Paul Lafarge that just came out. And it kind of has this, it tickles you in a way that reminded me of Philip K. Dick and the idea of, you know, what is a soul and what, what is a person and, 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 you know, what constitutes, you know, what, like how, how can something be animated and with books and literary creation specifically in mind where life is imbued by the author into an object. And then that object has a life of its own and goes on. And there's even a, Oh, a series, the, library of or the cemetery of forgotten books where it's almost like Fahrenheit mm. 451 where there is this special place where books reside and they must be cared for because they are these delicate living things um you know, but i oh, wonder cool <laughs> yeah i just wonder about uh your own thoughts about this you know like in some way especially with all the layers of this thing, you really bring all these different things to life that, you know, have a life that's so much bigger and grander than like even, do you, you know where I'm getting at with this at all? Uh, uh, I'm, I'm getting close. Keep, keep going for a little bit. <laughs> I don't know. If uh, I, can. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, are, are you, is it that it feels like there's an assertion of uh, there being something sacred or transcendent about, about narrative, about story, about the physical book? Sure. Yeah. Am I, am I getting close there? Yeah. Um, because I think all of that is, is true. I mean, uh, we're JJ and I both and, and Josh, our editor, I mean, we're all, we're all people who you know, have always loved books, have always found magic in not just in the books themselves, but in the act of reading, in the act of uh, feeling ourselves, ourselves change based on what we've read and the experiences that we've had navigating someone else's story. And in, and in, and there's also a magic that happens when you connect with other people over over another, over a book, over someone else's story. And, and, and that's, I, I think that was absolutely central to JJ's initial vision of this 
which is that, you know, that reading, that immersion in a story is, is both a sacred experience when for, it can be a sacred solitary experience and simultaneously be, um, a sacred social experience that it is a way to get closer to other people that there's something about shared narrative and, and, and maybe, you know, just in sharing what we think of a work or how a work made us feel or how characters made us feel that, that there's something that's a really, really um, effective way of for us to reveal ourselves to for us to reveal deeper parts of ourselves maybe deeper even than than we intend and books do that stories do that and that's that's something that's called out i think called out repeatedly in the book both in the straka novel and in the way jennifer and eric are are reacting to it and each other and so that I, i would say that's another one of the of the engines of the book um, along with the question of, you know, questions of how we define or speculate about identity, uh, and, you know, being one and another being, you know, what, what do stories do for us? What do they do for us as individuals and how do we connect with others over them? Uh, and not just, and, and I think, you know, it's not just, um, not just one-on-one sharing of, of experiences with the narrative, but, you know, culturally we're all there. There are texts that we, that in, in some ways influence an, an entire culture. Uh, so that's it, it. I would say S is a book in which we were trying to be extremely respectful of, or, or pay homage to that the, the power, I guess, of, of books to unite and, and change. What about... Was that unbearably pretentious? No, that was wonderful. Okay. I, what about okay. the magic of... So, like, often there's a... There's a phenomenon where a lot of writers feel like they're both writing and being written by the creation that they're creating. That there's this hmm. weird thing that happens where and you can see it in a lot of stories that we like to tell where the characters realize that they're in the story that they're mm-hmm. you know so like somehow they get into sync with the the immersed reality that they're obsessed with did you oh yeah yeah i mean i think that's actually pretty central to the whole experience of like of of the flow state when you're writing um and i'm sure you've heard this or, or felt this before um, that the best writing happens when you totally lose your awareness that you're writing and you lose your sense of any sort of boundary between yourself and the story. And it's just all, you know, it's, it's, it's this big, everything's just sort of coexisting without really firm boundaries. It's like that, uh, Oh God, there was, there's a book that came out a couple years ago. I think it was called My Stroke of Insight. It was by a woman who'd, who'd survived a stroke, and she talked about what it felt like as she was having it. And and what had happened was the I think like the only part of her brain that was functioning it was it was all right brain, and she totally lost her sense of any sort of definition between herself and that which was outside of herself. 
I mean, it was all this crazy, like everything is one kind of experience. And, and in a way, I think like when, when writing, at least for me, when, when, when the writing is going really well and I'm really connected to the story, it's maybe a little version of that where I'm not aware of myself as separate from it. And, uh, and, and I'm participating in it and, and necessarily I think I'm being changed by the stuff that is coming out of me. Does that? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. How, how easy and is I'm, it for you to get into that space? Is it hard oh, work for you to write? Uh, it's maddeningly difficult. I mean, I can write, you know, fr- frankly, one of the things that I learned one of the best experiences of writing this book was writing, having to write an insanely complex book for which there were, you know, sizable expectations on a really, really tight deadline. And so sitting around and waiting for inspiration or sitting around and wallowing in doubt, which is frankly something that I excel in, uh, (laughs) it it just wasn't an option. It was like, okay, man, time time to brew a pot of coffee and pound it out words and see what happens. So, you know, and, and were there long stretches of time where it was, yeah, just pounding out words and kind of agonizingly in a way, because I could feel that it wasn't, you know, I wasn't in the transcendent space, but I had to be in that, you know, kind of grind it out. This has to be good enough, at, at least for a first draft space. And then trust that eventually there'll, there'll be some balancing out where it won't just feel like this workmanlike effort and, and maybe eventually it will coalesce in something that, that feels greater than that. But no, it's, it's extremely rare, I think, for me to get into that place. And, and, I don't, and, and it can't be controlled. It can't be summoned. I mean, really what, what I learned... And I probably should have learned it long before, but I, I really did learn it with this book that you, you just have to put your ass in the chair and get your mind sort of pointed toward the world of the story and start making words happen. And, and at some point you will slip into it but, or you won't. But if you're going to do this, if you're going to be a writer for a living um, and I, I suppose maybe there are writers who are very good at summoning it. I, I'm not, but you, you have to, you know, ass in chair, fingers on keys, brain pointed in the right direction and, and just start going. And, and, you know, you will, you will either get there or you won't, but the stuff that you produce when you're not there will either have to serve or will eventually get you closer to, to that place where you really want to be. Uh, I, I feel like that's that answer kind of ballooned out of control, but, um, <laughs> have you been focused on anything these days? Do we have, can we expect anything from you in the nearest future? Um, well, you know, I, I actually needed to take, I took a little time off after I finished the book. So the, the book came out in fall of 2013 and I would say I, I didn't really, and I was writing, frankly, right up to the night, midnight, the night before the book came out, because there was all, all sorts of 
other material web-based stuff that needed to keep getting made. Uh, so, so I wrote a lot of stuff that's outside the, the covers of the book as well. Um, and I, and I was fried. Uh, so I, I mean, I'd been, I'd been pulling a couple all nighters a week for, for the, the two years that I was working hardest on the book. And, um, that's a lot easier to do when you're 18 than when you're in your mid forties. Uh, and, and my wife and I, we had a, we had a newborn. So, I mean, it was like, it was two and a half years of, of no sleep whatsoever. (laughs) Um, and, and I was teaching too. So, um, all of which is to say I, I was pretty empty and tired by the time we got done with this. So I, I, I took the better part of a year just away from writing, uh, just to like learn how to sleep and be human again. Uh, and, and then I, you know, I, uh, last year I, I worked as a staff writer on a TV show. I was on, um, it's, it's called Z the beginning of everything. It's on Amazon. Oh, it's, it's a, Zelda and Scott story yeah. through, sort of through a Zelda lens. Yeah. So I did, I did that last spring and summer. Um, and I've been, I've been working on a couple other TV projects of my own, trying to get them up and running um, some short stories, a couple essays here and there, but the, the next, uh, the next novel is frankly still in its early stages. Um but uh but it's coming along and i'm getting there uh and and i i'm every now and then i i have this bit of doubt that it i'll you know i'll wonder does this really want to be a novel or does it want to be a tv show every now and then you know i'll wonder oh wait no maybe this wants to be a narrative podcast like a like a, a radio play um which, which I imagine would guarantee absolutely no income from it, but you know, <laughs> whatever. Um, anyway, so I, I, you know, so I'm, I, I've got, uh, I've got my brain pointed in a bunch of different directions. I'm not sort of monomaniacally focused on one single thing. Uh, but, uh, that, that's probably coming soon. It, it's summer. So, you know, I, uh, the school year's over, which means that it's, summertime and and that's and that's writing time well that was 42 minutes thank you so much for sharing it with us cool well thank you for having me it was fun talking about it you bet you've been listening to doug dorst on 42 minutes a production of syncbook radio and syncbook.com for more information about his work visit his website dougdorst.com for more information about the syncbook our guests to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via itunes please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com if you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a SyncBook Plus member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to the complete audio archive, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio and video, as well as seasonal online hangouts with the hosts. All this and more can be found at SyncBook.com membership. Thanks so much. And do we pursue relationships out of self-interest? Um, yes. Wake up, Straka. Look at you kids with your vintage music. Coming through satellites while cruising You're part of the past, but now you're the future Signals crossing can get confusing It's enough just to make you feel crazy, crazy, crazy Sometimes it's enough just to make you feel crazy 
yours and you can't refuse it Seems on what you could get the blues by Crazy, crazy, crazy